0: Tenakoto 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 Kato. Um, as you may be able to tell, I am a Kiwi and I apologize if my accent causes anyone any difficulty tonight. Um, I'm also wearing a microphone for a hearing loop so if anyone in the audience is hearing impaired, you're welcome to talk to the AV guy at the back for some assistance with that. It's an incredible pleasure to be here tonight. Thank you so much to Ben and to all of your colleagues for making me feel so warmly welcomed here. And when I say warmly, I really mean it because it was freezing when I left Melbourne this morning. It's wonderful to be here in sunny Queensland with you all. And lovely to catch up with colleagues. So some of my colleagues at the centre here, Fiona McDonald, I worked with 16 years ago. and other colleagues I've met this afternoon, and really look forward to future collaborations. Before I start, I'd like to thank and acknowledge the funders of this research. So, in particular, AHPRA, the National Health and Medical Research Council, and the College of Physicians have funded this work, and also to thank the Health Complaints Commissioners and the other organisations who contributed data. I'd also like to recognise my colleagues at the University of Melbourne, and in particular, Matthew Spittle, our statistician, Professor David Studdart, and Professor Ron Patterson. The work that I'm going to talk about tonight really had had its origins in my first job as a lawyer. I was working for the Health Complaints Commissioner in New Zealand, working with Fiona by day. And in the evenings and weekends, I was working as a junior doctor at our local hospital. I found it really hard to reconcile the different worldviews. Um, held by people in those two organisations and I really love this quote from C.S. Lewis that what you see and hear depends a great deal on where you are standing and that was really certainly very true for me working both as a doctor and a lawyer. Um, And I came across a number of, of paradoxes that I found hard to reconcile in my work. So in my work as a lawyer It was very focused on looking at things that individual practitioners had done in relation to particular individual patients and individual cases. And we were really looking for evidence of of bad care, or as we call it in New Zealand, breaches of the Code of Rights. And my work as a lawyer was. reactive and retrospective, we were looking backwards with the benefit of hindsight at care that had already been delivered. And as I did that work, even though the work was all about individual cases and individual patients and individual doctors, I started to think that actually some of these doctors' names were starting to become familiar. And I started to get this feeling that maybe there was a group of doctors who were what we called in the industry, frequent flyers, coming through the revolving door through the complaint system time and time again. But yet when I went to my job at the hospital, that wasn't really the perception at all. Every single doctor that I worked with was fearful of receiving a complaint. And complaints didn't feel like predictable events at all to the doctors who worked there. They felt as though they were random events that anybody could be complained about at any time, that it would just take one bad day or one grumpy patient and you might be subject to a complaint. This was in the early 2000s and it was not long after the release of the Tuera's Medicine report which also focused very much on patient harm as being the result of systems issues rather than problems with individual care. And so a lot of the rhetoric at the time was that we should be moving to a no-blame system where we were looking at unsafe systems rather than thinking about what an individual practitioner had or hadn't done. And finally, the doctors that I worked with were very focused on the future. It was always about caring for the next patient who would be walking through the door, and it was really hard for us to understand why lawyers would spend weeks or months or even years, as somebody in the audience was telling me just now, going over and over and over the details of what might have been a 15 minute encounter with a fine tooth comb. So I really, you know, struggled to reconcile those two things in my head. Um, Kierkegaard likes to say that the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind and still retain the ability to function. (laughs) So clearly I don't have a first-rate intelligence because holding these two conflicting ideas and being at peace with that and still being able to function was really hard. Like, I wanted to work this out. I wanted to be able to try and find some way to be able to resolve this paradox. Um, And so, you know, it was... It was great to see this idea that actually it is in that tension between two opposites that we can find a lot of creativity, and that is um, academics and thinkers that sometimes trying to reconcile paradoxes is where good ideas can come from. So trying to reconcile some of those tensions between systems thinking and individual blame, I've really found my first clue in the work of Lucien Leap, So Lucian Leap is widely considered to be the father of the patient safety movement. He was one of the first people to suggest that actually it's unsafe systems rather than bad individuals that result in patient harm. So it was very interesting for me in the 2000s when I started to see Lucian actually talking about this issue of problem doctors. And he's clearly a man who can hold paradoxes in his mind and retain the ability to function. Because what Lucien did is he said that actually perhaps problem doctors are a different kind of system level problem. That if there are doctors who are working with impairments or who have competence concerns or who are repeatedly behaving in unethical ways, that reflects on the whole system and not just on that individual. And so for me, that sort of felt like the first clue that maybe there was a way to reconcile these different ideas. I had been working with complaints for quite a long time by now, um, and I became familiar with the work of Jerry Hickson. The title of today's talk is actually a nod to some of Jerry's work because Jerry suggested that all doctors practice under a medico-legal cloud but that it rains more heavily on some than others. I really love that, that all doctors practice under a medico-legal cloud, but it rains more heavily on some than others. And Jerry had been working with doctors at Vanderbilt for a long time, and he had developed some evidence that actually complaints are not randomly distributed, but that they cluster among a small group of doctors with distinct characteristics. So that got our research team thinking about whether it might be possible to try and explore that hypothesis in Australia. Could we test this idea that perhaps some doctors are at higher risk of complaints than others? So to do that we needed a large data set of complaints. And at this point I was pretty fresh off the plane from New Zealand and very, very naive. Because when my boss said, why don't you just ring every state and territory and ask them to agree to cooperate on a study and for each state and territory to give you 10 years of their data, I said, sure, that sounds like a good plan. With tremendous optimism, I said about um, contacting each of the commissioners. Those of you who've lived in Australia for a long time will appreciate that actually getting every state and territory to agree on anything um, poses some formidable challenges. But as it turned out, the commissioners were incredibly supportive of this research. When we spoke with the commissioners, and we're really lucky to have Leon in the audience today, who was the commissioner in Tasmania at the time, they said that they also had this gut concern that there were some practitioners who were coming to their attention time and time again and one of the commissioners said it felt like a ticking time bomb under her desk, that she had this information about practitioners and that maybe one day a patient would be harmed or perhaps somebody would even die and that with the benefit of hindsight people would look at their history of complaints and say why didn't you do something sooner. So actually the Commissioners were very, very supportive of us undertaking this study. Um, I like to think of, of patient complaints to commissioners really as the tip of an iceberg. We know that for every formal complaint that's made, there are many, many instances of patient harm that don't result in a formal complaint. But they do still alert us to concerns in the health sector. So, this was the study that we published in BMJ Quality and Safety. In the end, we collected data on 19,000 complaints. Since I'm in Queensland, I can say that the um, Queensland data was probably the best quality data that we collected anywhere in the country. Um, and I would like to congratulate everyone here who may have been involved in that. You know, data quality is not really a very sexy issue, but as all researchers know you can't do good research unless you have good data. And the time and effort that Queensland had put into making sure that their data was robust and accurate and complete really paid off, I think. Um, in the end, we, every state and territory agreed to participate, but in the end, South Australia needed to withdraw for political reasons. Um, Nevertheless, that data set of 19,000 complaints was probably the biggest complaint study in the world to that time. Some of our findings were not very surprising, so we looked at the reasons that patients complained, and we found that clinical care was the number one cause of complaints, communication was number two. And even where communication issues weren't the primary cause of complaint, they were often a secondary issue in the background that had prompted the patient to raise their concerns. Um, On the whole, patients tend to be very forgiving and very understanding of the fact that doctors are human and generally what we see is that formal complaints only come forward when initial concerns are not handled promptly and well by the provider. So none of that was very surprising. But some of our findings were more surprising. I really love this slide. Um, So, look, I don't think this is going to change your world, but because I'm a patient safety researcher, this kind of did change my world, so just bear with me. So, this is what we found that fewer than 5% of doctors accounted for nearly 50% of all of the formal patient complaints. It's a pretty striking finding. You know, based on my work with the complaints commissioners, I had been expecting to find some clustering, but even we were surprised by the extent of this finding. So what we found was that over a 10-year period, um, about 80% of doctors had no formal complaints at all. About 15% of the doctors had one or maybe two complaints during that 10 year period, and perhaps they were people who were having a bad day or had a particularly difficult patient encounter. That didn't really say anything stronger about their overall standard of care, but there was this small minority of patients who were receiving recurrent complaints to the complaints commissioner. This small group of practitioners did have some distinct characteristics, so men were really overrepresented in that group. Male doctors, even after you accounted for their age and their specialty and their place of work, they had about a 40% higher chance of recurrent complaints than female practitioners, and some specialties were at much higher risk than others. Um, You can probably guess, does anyone want to hazard a guess as to what some of the higher risk specialties may have been for multiple complaints? I hear a surgery? Yeah, anything else? Yeah, gynecological, obstetrics. Any particular kinds of surgery that you might think might be at higher risk? Yeah, plastics right near the top of the list. Yeah. Um, what about the low risk specialties? Who do you think is at lower risk of complaint? Yeah, radiologists, pathologists, and anesthetists are actually pretty low as well. Um, And and so something interesting about pathologists, radiologists, and anesthetists is that they don't have a lot of awake face-to-face contact (laughs) with their patients, (laughs) which may reduce the risk of um, recurrent complaints. But two other groups that had relatively low risks were the, um, the GPs and the pediatricians. And I think there was something there about the nature of that ongoing patient relationship, you know, a relationship of trust and confidence that may have meant that concerns were able to be worked out within the bounds of that relationship as well. Um, So those were some of the characteristics of high-risk doctors, more likely to be male. Um, There was sort of some suggestion that older age practitioners were perhaps at increased risk, but not especially striking in that specialty factor. But by far the strongest predictor of recurrent complaints was, in fact, your past history of complaints. So um, let's see if I can get that pointer to work. So the way that this graph works is this is sort of on day zero and this is a practitioner who's had one complaint, a practitioner who's had two complaints, a practitioner who's had three complaints, five complaints and so on. So what you can see is if you take a practitioner who's had five previous complaints and you start following them from day zero, so you follow them out to see what happens to this person who's had five previous complaints. You can see that by the time you get out two years, there's an 80% chance that that practitioner will have been subject to another formal complaint to a health complaints commissioner. And if you take somebody who's had 10 previous complaints, by the time you get out another two years, it's almost guaranteed that they will have been subject to another complaint. So for us, that was a really, really important finding that actually past behaviour is such a strong predictor of future behaviour and I think quite difficult for regulators and ombudsmen and people working in those roles to actually ignore this finding that by the time a practitioner has had three or more complaints, they really are at significantly elevated risk of having further patient complaints. So that paper was published in BMJ Quality and Safety. We tried submitting it to some of the major American journals, but they weren't quite convinced because, after all, it was Australian data and who really knows what Australian doctors get up to? Um, So they said, nice study, but do you think, you know, you could do your study with American data? And so we did. Um, We were able to collect data on 66,000 paid malpractice claims from the United States. um, Which, again, I think it's probably one of the biggest studies of its type. So that was pretty much every paid malpractice claim um, over that study period from across the United States. And we used pretty much exactly the same study methodology and, unsurprisingly, we came up with pretty much the same findings. So, we found that male practitioners were at significantly elevated risk compared with their female peers, even after we controlled for everything that we were able to control for, that certain specialties were at higher risk. There were some differences in the specialties. So, for example, you're quite unlikely to get a paid malpractice claim against a psychiatrist, but more patients will complain about a psychiatrist. So, you know, there are differences between the complaint system and the malpractice claim system. But those high-risk specialties, the obstetricians and gynaecologists and neurosurgeons and plastic surgeons, their ranking was pretty much the same. Um, And then the question was, did we see the same kind of clustering? Were we able to observe these high-risk practitioners in the United States as well? And you need to remember that paid malpractice claims are really very rare Events, you know, to to be successful in being awarded money in a malpractice claim, that's a pretty high hurdle. So you wouldn't necessarily expect to see a lot of clustering. But what we found is that one percent of doctors accounted for 32 percent of the paid malpractice claims in the United States. Um, so again, this really strong clustering and an important ability to predict doctors future behaviour based on their past behaviour. So you can see here that these curves are very similar to the ones that I showed you earlier. They're a little bit more shallow and that's because malpractice claims are rarer events. But still you can see that for somebody who's had um, five previous paid malpractice claims, um, if you follow them for two years out there's about a 40% chance that there will have been another payment on another malpractice claim. And then those are the, the specialty data that I spoke about earlier. So you can see there, so we used um, physicians as our reference category, neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgery, general surgery, plastic surgery, ONG among the high-risk specialties, psychiatry, paediatrics, neurology, anaesthesia among the low-risk specialties. Might just, okay, so um, we're two next? So we'd looked at complaints in Australia, we'd looked at malpractice claims in the United States. And around this time, um, APRA was forming, which was an incredibly exciting opportunity because it meant that we would be able to access data not just on doctors but on all registered health practitioners. And it's a real privilege to be a health researcher in Australia because I'm not aware of any other country in the world that has as good um, a national data set on all registered health practitioners as Australia does. So. We started working with APRA to develop a research partnership with them. Um, Our initial work with APRA focused on mandatory reporting, and and those studies have been reported in journals if anyone's interested in mandatory reporting, but once we'd built up some trust with APRA, we were able to reach agreement to establish a national notifications minimum data set. So what that data set is, is it contains information on all of the health conduct and performance concerns notified to APRA over a five-year period about 620,000 practitioners from 14 different health professions. So really, really powerful data set. Um, All of the data is completely de-identified. We don't have any practitioners' names or dates of birth or addresses in there. Um, It's completely de-identified, but still it has incredible statistical power to be able to answer some of these questions. So we're just um, in the early stages of that partnership grant, but you can keep your eyes open for those findings as they come through. So we've completed aim one, which was to establish the data set. We're now in the process of describing the epidemiology of those notifications. Um, The final two aims of our APRA project um, are looking at specific hotspots of risk, so really trying to describe the characteristics of practitioners at risk of particular issues. So, um, the previous work has just looked at complaints or malpractice claims as a whole, but with the ARPRA data, we can break it down for it. So, for example, we can look at hotspots of financial fraud or um, hotspots of uh, poor consent um, and really try and understand where we could best intervene to try and reduce those risks. What we're hoping to eventually do is to try and develop um, what we call our prone calculator, predicted risk of new event, and this follows the kind of model that you'll be familiar with, for example from cardiovascular risk scores, where you take a number of risk factors, so a practitioner's age, um, their practice location, their specialty, perhaps their number of previous complaints or notifications, and you put all of that information together into like a really simple, accessible kind of a um, risk calculator. Just to give you a sense of how somebody's risk is looking, I always like to say that this kind of epidemiological data can give you red flags but not crystal balls. You know, we can't make any promises about what a practitioner may or may not do in the future and in fact for some practitioners who've had multiple previous complaints there are very good reasons why that may be happening. So for example, um, if you're a surgeon who's developed a reputation as being able to manage the most complex and difficult cases for patients with lots of comorbidities, it's possible that you may have more adverse outcomes than one of your colleagues, and hopefully if somebody was able to look back over your complaints history and your practice profile, they would be able to understand that that's why you appear to be higher risk. So, like to say, they're red flags, they're not crystal balls, but I think what it does do is for regulators with scarce resources, it really helps them to be able to focus their efforts Um, And I think this is important for the low risk practitioners as well as the high risk practitioners. So sometimes regulators can spend what seems to be like an inordinate amount of time investigating and pursuing an isolated complaint about a relatively low level matter and it's extremely stressful for practitioners to be sitting under that regulatory gaze and when those proceedings go on for months or even years it can have a huge impact on practitioners well-being and their mental health and their relationships with their families and their patients and so I think the more that we're able to support Regulators and commissioners to effectively triage these concerns so that you can think actually This is a really important concern that this patient has raised Why don't we resolve it face to face through a mediation get a quick and timely and effective resolution for both parties and move on Or conversely, you could say, actually, this practitioner's had four pretty similar complaints in the last three years. We think we need to devote some additional time and resources to understanding what's going on here and seeing what needs to be done to make sure that this um, person is safe in future. So, um, I think the work that I've done so far has, has convinced me that actually some doctors are complaint prone. And I think that we do have an ethical responsibility to respond to that knowledge by doing something to help protect patients who may be at risk as a result. The really challenging research question which I would love help um, on how best to answer this is how you do those interventions, who should be intervening, when should they be intervening, how would we know whether those interventions were effective Um, and I think looking forward to our group's research programme in future that's a question that I would really like to do some more work on. So this is an intervention pyramid that I've adapted from Jerry Hickson's work, which suggests that you have this kind of broad base where actually interventions are starting all the way back at medical school. Um, you know, you can see in this study that actually doctors who are... Beha- um, medical students who are behaving very badly at medical school, that is actually one predictor for future disciplinary action. So even before people go into practice, you need to start thinking about professionalism and ethics and values. Then you move up to the practitioner who's had a single complaint or a single malpractice claim. And there you might be checking in with them to try and understand what happened, see what additional support they might need. We sometimes talk about doctors as second victims when there's been a medical error and really making sure that they're not feeling alone in that process and if there is some remediation needed that they can access it. Then you move through to where there's an emerging pattern of concern, and here I don't think there's any one body that is responsible. Um, Probably it's going to be a combined effort from the professional colleges, hospitals, other employers, the insurers and the regulators. And then if the pattern persists, you reach the point where it really is a matter for a regulatory body and perhaps even disciplinary action. And I know that we've got somebody in the audience here who's been serving on a disciplinary tribunal who may also be able to contribute to the discussion afterwards. You know, when I do my clinical work, I see how rigorous doctors are about evaluating interventions. You can't introduce a new medication or a new test unless you understand the relevant relative benefits and harms. And I think that in the law and policy space, we lag quite a long way behind in actually assessing the value of these interventions before we implement them. Um, This is Jo Flynn, who's the chair of the Medical Board of Australia, and at a recent conference she said it's time for us to move away from being regulatory philosophers to regulatory scientists, and what Jo was saying there is that actually in responding to these high risk doctors, we really need to be quite rigorous about asking what works, you know, what's the evidence base for different interventions, how are we evaluating whether or not they're making a difference. All right, well that's just about the end of my presentation. I thought I'd just kind of update you on how I'm going with these paradoxes that I'm struggling to hold in my mind. Um, I certainly don't have answers for them yet, but I feel as though I'm starting to make some headway in being able to hold these apparently opposing concepts in my mind at the same time. So I really agree with Lucian Leap that actually um, problem doctors are a different kind of system problem, that if a doctor has a mental health concern or if they're doing procedures that they're not adequately equipped to do, if they're working such long hours that they're exhausted and can no longer display compassion for their patients, those really are systems issues. And so every time we identify one of these high-risk practitioners, we need to be thinking about the context in which they work and how we can be creating a safer system around them to help support them back into safe care. question of bad care and bad luck. Um, certainly all of us have unlucky days. We all make mistakes, there will always be times when things go wrong and the work we're doing doesn't have the outcome that we want. But I think that unless we lift our gaze and start to look for patterns of bad luck, we're at risk of missing patterns of bad care. And so think it's really important that anybody who's working in a large health organisation, working for an ombudsman or a commissioner or an insurance authority that they're able to lift their gaze and to look at the bigger picture to try and understand whether what we're seeing is bad luck or whether perhaps it may be indicative of bad care. And then finally you know, I saw this, this situation where lawyers were so focused on the past and doctors were wanting to think about the future. And we can't have one without the other, really. We ignore history at our peril, but at the same time, as lawyers, we shouldn't just be backward looking. We should be thinking about what this means for future care and the future safety of patients. So that's about as far as as I've got with my thinking. I'm really looking forward to having the opportunity for discussion with all of you, hearing some of your thoughts on those research findings and any suggestions for where perhaps we should be going next with our research. Thank you.